Welcome everyone to Future of Fintech. Today we're going to cover property and casualty insurance, which I had to look up actually. Basically, car insurance, property insurance, rental insurance. Am I missing another big category of insurance? Auto, home, renters, commercial so, falls into yeah, a Yeah, a lot of commercial, a lot of different commercial coverages. Basically okay. anything that's not, not life insurance or health insurance. Got it. So lots of insurance. We're here with two great founders, Sean from Kin Insurance. They are focused on the home side of insurance. They've raised 87 million, at least according to Crunchbase. ClearCover is kind of focused on the auto side of it. They've raised a bit more than 100 million. And then Shiel, uh, my co-host uh, over at BTV and me, and the founder of Mercury, which is Bank for Startups. What's changed about insurance and insurtech that's led to tons of insurance, insurtech startups nowadays? Like, is there some fundamental kind of thing that's changed underlying regulations or something? I mean, there are a ton relative to historical norms when there were zero, but it's still not that many. If you compare insurance, like the size of the industry, it's really big. Just PNC in the US is probably $800, $900 billion. Just personal lines PNC is like almost 400. And then you only have, I don't know, 15, 20, maybe like venture-backed companies in the space. It might be more than that, it might be 30, but it's, it's, I think it's a lot less. I think it's still under indexes relative to a lot of other industries. And one question is, well, why hasn't there been much before? And the barriers to entry in it are insane. It's just a very protected industry. And so it's essentially dominated by this like oligopoly of super entrenched companies that don't really face any sort of competitive threat. So that's that's why there haven't been very many historically. And I think there still aren't very many right now. So like in banking, whereas where I am, you know, the big change over the last three years was banking as a service providers that kind of, you know, reduce the barrier to entry from like let's say six million dollars seed funding to maybe two million dollars in seed funding before you could launch Challenger Bank. Has anything like that happened in InsurTech? Capital. I mean, I, I agree with Sean. There's nothing that's like fundamentally changed in terms of the regulatory environment or the structure of insurance companies. If anything has changed, it's been one, people's attitude towards the space. Like, okay, let's, let's focus on insurance. But maybe more than anything, access to capital to build a new insurance company, both on the reinsurance side of the house and on the venture side of the house. In the past... You typically had to build a company, an insurance carrier over a period of like 80 years, because essentially you wouldn't find a ton of people who were going to throw large amounts of venture capital at you to build one of these things. That's that's changed. It certainly helped. And then reinsurers, I think, as well, have stepped in to, to back a lot of the risk in these things. And, and that traditionally, like you just didn't see quota share reinsurance getting thrown around the way that it is now to help stand up the growth of, of new insure tech companies. So if anything structural, I would say on the capital side more than anything. Kyle, do you want to talk about MGAs, how that's been the predominant form of startups in the space? So managing general agency, it sounds like a thing. It's a spectrum of things. But, but in essence, it's not an insurance company per se. It's not an insurance carrier. It's an insurance agency with some additional level authority for selecting risk or engaging with the customer. And so this could look everything from like a, an MGA that is you know very focused on a particular type of customer. For example, like traditionally speaking, an MGA might be someone who stood up a company that was very good at selling insurance to dentists because they just really understood the dental market more than anybody. And they had you know risk models, which allowed them to go and like 
sell the crap out of insurance to a bunch of dentists and make money doing it. Very specialized sort of agency plus type of model. Then there's the like quasi carrier type model, which you see floating around more today, which is still an agency. They don't take a bunch of risk on their balance sheet like an insurance carrier, but they are going to do underwriting. They're going to do billing. They're going to manage the customer relationship. They look a lot more like an insurance carrier. And then they have, you know, similar to how you might think of like a, uh, you know, someone who uses a, a bank's license to act like a bank, they use an insurance company's license to act like an insurance company. And so there's a whole bunch of folks standing up MGAs now. And certainly that's been, to your point, I think, Shield, something that is structurally changed is that people have started to use that vehicle a lot more frequently and in, in ways that they maybe hadn't in the past. Yeah. And I think we're all copying from what we saw happen in FinTech with the rented charters. Mm-hmm. And then wish, wishing that the MGA model was as well developed as the rented charters are, which which is not. Like there are a lot of reasons why the MGA model in insurance is not as scalable as the rented charter model in banking. What are the reasons it's not as scalable? So the the regulator, and this is so much so much true in banking too. The regulator doesn't really look through to the MGA, and they they really regulate carrier sponsor carrier. And the laws are set up in a lot of places so that it's very hard for a carrier like that to sponsor multiple MGAs in the same line of business. And so that has the second, which kind of makes sense, uh, but it has the second order impact of meaning that none of these companies, none of these fronting companies who are lending out their license, none of them can get to scale because they, they can only choose one partner in each line of insurance. They never develop the infrastructure that actually makes them useful, and they they're you know they're 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 below scale enterprises. So if you think about the stuff that a rent a charter you know bank helps you with, they really handle a lot of the regulatory stuff. Versus in my experience as an MGA, you end up handling a lot of the regulatory stuff because the guy the sponsor doesn't really know what they're doing. Let me just introduce Steph. She's from Portag Three Ventures. Hey Steph, welcome. Thanks, Imad. One unlock that I think is actually interesting has been the aggressiveness of the reinsurers coming into market to essentially partner with MGAs to disintermediate the carrier and allow the MGAs to really handle distribution. Because you don't, if you have a reinsurance backer, there is no real reason to have a carrier. And, and I think that's a trend that we're pretty bullish on because if you think about the reinsurers at the end of the day, they have, even if the fronting carrier doesn't really have enough data, can't get to scale, the reinsurers really do. And they've, I think, been the, the major enabler of, the, of this MGA trend over the past five years. Just for the audience, like what is a reinsurer and you know, where does it live in this ecosystem? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to start. The reinsurer basically is, it, it sits at kind of, I guess, the very back of the ecosystems. The way that we kind of look at the market is you've kind of got the broker at the very front end, you've got these MGA models, you then have the a fronting carrier, and then the reinsurer is kind of at the very back of the stack. It basically aggregates different kinds of risk pools at the very back of the stack. I guess the other kind of option, if you don't use a reinsurer, is you can hold the risk on on your own balance sheet if you're a carrier. And then there's a third kind of like option sitting in that part of the value chain 
which is the ILS market, which is basically like a capital markets solution where you can tranche out some of the risk that you have to an investor. And that's kind of your, your other option if you aren't using a reinsurer. The other thing to remember about insurance is that you really get paid a lot for diversification because insurance on average, you know, assuming the market works properly is going to be priced appropriately and will be profitable. But the issue is that there's a timing or geographic or some, some other sort of aggregation of risk that makes it at that point in time unprofitable. And that's the whole point of risk transfer. And so what you see is these reinsurers are massively larger and therefore much more diversified than even the largest primary carriers. So like, yeah, Allstate is big, but Swiss Re is a heck of a lot bigger. And so then you look at it and we'll say, okay, well, if Allstate isn't advantaged on the capital side, are they advantaged on the origination and servicing side? And I think the answer relative to companies like mine or like Kyle's is, well, no, they're not actually. They're they're pretty antique with the way they do origination and servicing. They're out of touch with what the customer wants. They're out of touch with the way technology works now. And so now we rewire the entire stack and we have tech companies doing the origination and servicing. And then you have the reinsurers taking on the on the risk. And then when the tech companies start to get scale, like like mine has, like Kyle's has, we then start to say, well, we want to have our own very small balance sheet because it's a more efficient transformer of the risk, the retail risk that we're originating into the wholesale global reinsurance markets. That's what a lot of these sort of capital light insurance companies like Lemonade or you know, Clear Cover Us are doing. We're really not in the business of insurance. We're really in the business of origination and servicing. And we're externalizing a lot of the balance sheets, of these, these global reinsurers who are by far the best at that just because they're so diversified. So did fintech companies just get better at talking to these reinsurance companies or did the reinsurance companies like fundamentally change their strategy and like decide to like enable the space? I think the big change here has really been that reinsurance traditionally has been a very important, but actually pretty low margin part of the value chain. And so you ended up with this world in which the reinsurers were in this really weird place of taking on a lot of risk, but not actually capturing that much benefit and margin. And so the interesting trend is over the last five years, they've been able to actually go partner with these these MGAs, cut out the carrier in the middle, capture more of the margin than they would have previous to this, and actually hold assuming that the underwriting of the MGAs is actually pretty good and somewhat differentiated, or even not that differentiated, but hold slightly better risk than they were being offered by the large incumbent carriers, many of whom had a data advantage and a scale advantage to be able to really select what they wanted to. What are the things that you can do, Sean or Kyle, to drive better underwriting that traditional carriers are not doing? It very much depends on what line of business you're talking about first and foremost. But at the end of the day, if you, if you had to, at least in my opinion, if you had to try and sort of create like an underlying thesis as to how anybody might do it, it really boils down to being able to make better use of or acquire, you know, new signals that others aren't and turning that into some insight, some usable insight about, about risk. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. Although I, I think people always jump to this idea that, you know, insure techs 
are an opportunity because they have they, they must have a data advantage because technology. I don't think that's the biggest opportunity. It's actually one of the hardest opportunities to execute on as an early stage company, like less than 10 years old. Because, you know, first of all, it's hard to show the data advantage over a short time period. So the scale of the time periods of these risks are, are actually pretty long. The other one is we actually have a much bigger advantage. I say we, you know, as InsurTech generally on the origination servicing customer experience side in most lines, because well, I'd say all state is like generally pretty good at pricing and underwriting. They're really abysmally bad at customer acquisition, servicing at a low cost, servicing at a high quality relative to what sort of accepted norms are in other industries. Most of the juice, at least the early juice, is is not necessarily around risk selection, but around other aspects of the insurance product. If you look at someone like Progressive, who has had really consistently good results, it's not because they had secrets they were able to keep from anyone else. It's because they've stayed like slightly ahead of the curve. I'd say speed, speed is one of the killer apps in insurance. You know, in many ways, the world is changing faster than it ever has before. And with the exception of a handful of companies like Progressive, these are really sleepy companies that move really, really slowly. The advantage is in creating an infrastructure that allows you to respond faster to changes in the world. If the advantage is like origination and servicing, what happens when there's 20 companies in home insurance or like 30 companies in car insurance that are, that are all startups that all have like modern technology tools? Do the CACs just go high? Do the margins get suppressed? Or is there just like the brand advantage will compound? Regulation forces commoditization on the market in many ways. And in a relatively commoditized market, we're talking about acquisition and servicing being an advantage, which I agree with. But I think we should be careful not to conflate advantage in terms of like, oh, we just have better customer experience, like better user experiences, so we'll win. It's really more in a commoditized market like PNC insurance generally, it's more about cost than it is UX. UX is fairly replicable, but building enduring cost advantages allows you to deliver those user experiences at a lower price to the consumer, which tends to allow you to win long-term. And so the way you end up winning long-term in the face of incumbents or new startups is by figuring out ways to drive your costs lower and lower as a business so you can continue to deliver better experiences at that lower price to consumers. And I would argue that even startups can create some enduring cost advantages versus other startups, depending on how they think about distribution or how they think about selecting risk or the underlying infrastructure they built around the business. It is, it is possible to have pretty disparate cost results even among startups, given your approach to the market and how you built your company. Where is the biggest place you can get a cost advantage? Like an acquisition or support or underwriting? What's like the biggest kind of cost advantage someone can build? Almost any line of business, the, the single biggest cost you have is actually paying claims. But again, like I would argue that the long-term returns there are marginal at best because regulation is going to sort of force everyone to some very narrow level of like profitability over time. So what's left is customer acquisition, servicing, and claims handling. And depending on the line, one of those can be bigger than the other. For example, in auto, actually the biggest one is a percent of lifetime premium is probably claims handling as opposed to acquisition costs. But but acquisition costs are a large percentage of like first year premium, certainly. So that's that's more leverage for the startup early in its in its lifetime. But it really boils down to those three. It's acquisition costs, servicing costs, and claims handling expenses, assuming that fixed costs over time 
decrease more market norms with scale. But it's, it's those three that are the big ones, in my opinion. We had a question from an audience member texted me saying, like, what's the long-term vision for your startups? Like, is it just to do what you're doing and just keep doing it bigger? Or do you want to expand lines? How do you think about it? We have a direct relationship with our customer. We have skin in the game to make sure that nothing bad happens to their home, or if it does, that it's taken care of properly. And homeowners insurance is a very sticky product. Customers keep it for a long time, you know, seven, eight years on average. And so we think that by starting with homeowners insurance, we're in a really good position to do other financial products that are related to the home. Another reason why we think that makes a lot of sense is that homeowners tend to be the better customers. These are people that have assets, they have good credit scores. And so they're really good customers for a lot of these other cross-sells. So five years from now, we really see Kin as an integral part of owning a home and less of a pure play insurance company. What are the rough like unit economics of InsurTech? Like, you know, you talked about like getting to 10 billion in insurance premiums. Like if you were doing that, how much revenue does that like equate to? Yeah. So probably better to think about gross profit than revenue. Because depending on how you're structured, premiums are your revenue. If you're an insurance company like like Kyle is. If you're an MGA, your revenue is less than your premium. It's probably something like 25, 20, 30%. But your gross margin percentage is a lot higher. So the normalized way to think about it is with gross profit. And I think for a lot of a lot of companies in personal lines at least they're aiming for like a 25% of premium ish gross profit, maybe, maybe lower in auto because it's more competitive, but that seems to be sort of in the ballpark. And if you look at, you know, the public, a bunch of insurance techs have gone public now, you know, there's Metro mile root lemonade and hippo. They're all sort of in that ballpark, or at least aspirationally in that ballpark, practically speaking, a lot of them actually, have margins that are a lot lower than that right now, but they have some, you know, line of sight or plan anyway to get to that sort of 20, 25% of premium ballpark. Is the main reason to go from an MGA into like a full carrier to get more of that share and to increase your gross profit margin? Not really. It, it does help, but I, at least I'll just speak for myself. You can plan on giving up probably five-ish points of margin if you're an MGA, but rather than a carrier, you know, it's, it's meaningful, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not your largest cost. The biggest reason to have your own balance sheet is because it puts you in control of your own destiny from a regulatory perspective. And when you're renting your balance sheet from somebody else, it's pretty fragile. And they also usually become pretty involved in your business with respect to evaluating what you're doing and how you're selecting risk. Similarly, the reinsurers, like if you don't have any skin in the game at all, the reinsurers are pretty picky about what you do. If you have your own small balance sheet and you're taking the first dollar of losses, they trust you a lot more, right? Cause they know that you're going to lose your, your own money before you lose theirs. So I, I think it's more about control that most, most of the, Insure techs that have gotten to scale have decided to have their own balance sheet in some form or fashion. 
mainly about control, not economics. I think to tie it all back to the to the other point that you just made around cross-sell, very obviously the margin and unit economic profile would be a lot better if you could amortize the cost of acquisition for a customer, which is actually the major, like one of the major costs across a number of different lines. I personally have really yet to see this materialize in any meaningful way. Almost every insure tech story includes the idea that you will be able to cross-sell. I believe that's a handful will, but I just haven't seen it play out quite yet. And I think there's more to come to this story. I think as like Lemonade as well, just announced they're going into life. But I think like that's still the part of the story that we will see play out over the next five years is can you move from a single line to a multi-line? Can you move beyond just being PNC and also covering life and health in the same group? So, I mean, outside of home and auto, which is pretty commonly cross-sold in the legacy industry, but not not the majority cross-sold. There aren't that many examples, even of legacy companies selling multiple products to a single customer. I think I would be pretty skeptical if I were an investor in anybody who was building their financial case around selling multiple products, just because there's not a huge historical precedent for it. If the economics don't work based on one product, I don't know, it seems like a pretty risky proposition to bet that, you know, years down the road, you're going to be able to sell them a second or a third. I guess the counter to that in banking, every bank does cross-sell the hell out of customers and has done that successfully for a long time. You know, we see that in at least banking fintechs that it seems like people have been successful in making multiple product lines there, uh, monetized in different ways. Okay, cool. I guess another question I had, which relates to this MGA carrier thing, roughly speaking, how much money does one have to raise to like, start an insure tech and follow-up question if you do want to go from an mga to a carrier how much more capital do you have to raise for that it depends on the line so i i would say like to to do a, a really serious mga you probably need like i don't know at least five million bucks just to build the software it can take a while to set up the mga you're gonna need some time for user acquisition so it's probably not that different than most other most other tech companies to be a carrier, the regulatory requirements are very different depending on what line you're in. I think auto is probably pretty low on that spectrum. Home is sort of in the middle. To do a lot of types of commercial insurance, you're going to need a really strong credit rating. So if you're going to do it on your own balance sheet, you might need high, more capitalization. So when you have $35 million of capital and you put that in this carrier system, does that mean you can only have... 350 million off premiums. Like what is the kind of ratio of like capital to premium? It depends on the line again. It also depends on how much you lever it up with reinsurance because the the capital ratios are calculated based upon your net premiums. So the difference between your gross premiums and your net premiums are that you seed some amount of your premiums off to the reinsurers. And so a lot of the ratios that the regulators and the credit rating agencies pay attention to are based on net premiums. In homeowners, that sort of eight to one leverage is a pretty good rule of thumb. I, I don't know what it is in other lines. So the general rule of thumb, let's just call it to make things simple. It's two to one premium to surplus. It's not actually that an auto might be more like three to one. And it's, that's not actually how it's calculated at all. There's a risk-based capital calculation that you use to figure this out. 
But to simplify, let's say the rule is two to one. For every $2 of premium you write, you have to keep $1 on the balance sheet. So that rule applies to whoever keeps the premium, right? So if, if I keep all the premium and I want to make all the profit from the underwriting, then I have to have that dollar. If I give one of those dollars away to a reinsurer, then I only have to have 50 cents because technically then the reinsurer has to have that 50 cents to sit in surplus. And so, but that, the rule sticks, it just follows the money. And so as Sean is suggesting, you, you can use reinsurance to effectively create leverage to say, well, look, I'm gonna write $2 in premium, but I'm only gonna keep 50 cents of that $2. And so as a result, I'm going to have to keep a lot less money on my balance sheet and someone else is going to have to keep the rest of that money on on their balance sheet. But to revisit a conversation we had at the beginning, reinsurance is just capital. It's not a magic trick. I don't actually believe in the whole capital light thing, which might be blasphemy for somebody running an insurer tech startup, but like I kind of think it's bullshit because at the end of the day, reinsurance also has a cost. Right now, it, when you're brand new and you're early and nobody's going to borrow you enough money at the right rate to go stick on your balance sheet and bear all the risk because nobody knows if you know what the hell you're doing, it's pretty cheap to get that money from a reinsurer who, for whom that number is relatively small and who is wildly diversified so they can assume that risk. As you get bigger, that cost of reinsurance actually starts to, to become a lot closer to your overall cost of capital. And if you're somebody like a large renter's insurance player recently went public and like your cost of equity capital is crazy low then it might not make sense to use reinsurance at all, depending on the cost of reinsurance. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can use reinsurance as leverage to lower the amount of money you have to keep, but somebody's got to hold that money. And if you're running an insurance company, your game is figuring out it's it's sort of weighted average cost of capital. And when you said the ratio is two to one, that was an example ratio, or you're saying that's the actual ratio? It's effectively two to one. It's not, auto is a little higher, homeowners is in that, in that neighborhood, but two to one is a good place to start. And Sean, when you said it was 81 for you, you were saying that's like blended after reinsurance? Correct, yeah. I have one more question. I feel like part of Warren Buffett's story was that he got an insurance company very early on, which had great cash flows, and he, he used those cash flows to go buy a bunch of other companies. Maybe I miss kind of framing his story, but is that true that insurance just has like amazing cash flows? And is that an advantage that insurtechs will have? Can be, it's a huge advantage. It's rare to have a business where you collect cash and deliver the product later. And insurance is one of those. 